guys? Welcome to the Care Coach Lead Show. This is Andrew Frezza, and I got a special guest today. I got Dr. Ray Gorman here with me, and uh, we're going to be recording and talking about how to get clients out of pain and injury. We're going to be talking about how to transition group class clients to one-on-one -on -one and how coaches can start to build a book of business and build a career helping clients in the one-on-one -on -one setting that aren't a fit for group. And we'll talk about how to get your time back with a potential remote offering for those of you guys that do in-person stuff and want to look at potentially being able to expand your reach by going remote, going on the online route. So welcome to the show, Ray. Thank you for having me. Very excited to be here and chat yes, with you. Yes, it's man. really exciting. We were talking a little bit before this and uh, Ray came down to our gym in March of 2019 as part of Active Life to run a seminar uh, with our team. And, and that's where we got a chance to meet. And then my wife was, was working with him a little bit um, over these last couple of years. So give us a little bit about your background, Ray, and, uh, and how'd you get into like the physical therapy, um, get into that side of things. So I've always known that I wanted to be in the medical field. Um, I just didn't know what that journey was going to look like for me. And like many physical therapists, going to med school was a massive commitment that I really didn't want to spend eight years doing. So I ended up kind of in the, AC, uh, in the uh, physical therapy field after I tore my ACL. I uh, started CrossFit in 2008, and that was kind of a good process for me to understand that I, I really wanted to bridge those two things. I wanted my practice to be for CrossFitters, for fitness athletes, and I wanted to be the person who was kind of running that rehab and, and blending those two fields. Um, so went to physical therapy school, kind of did the traditional outpatient orthopedic clinic for two years, uh, quickly found out that that was not for me. I didn't enjoy going into the same building each day. I needed some variety. Went and worked in sports med um, at the Division I Athletics Department at University of Nevada, Reno, and really started to learn a lot about workload and tendinopathy and had great mentors there, um, but it still wasn't scratching the itch of what I was looking for. And then I started my own clinic and I started it in a CrossFit gym. And next thing I knew, it really started to look like exactly what I wanted to do, who I wanted to help. And my process was a blend of in-person and remote programming. That, that really solved the problem that a lot of CrossFitters were experiencing. Nice. Did you ever um, get into the fitness side of things in terms of coaching CrossFit or coaching, whether that be like on the athletic field or in the weight room of a <clears throat> sports team, or has it always been more on the physical therapy side? Yeah. So 2008 started my fit, my real fitness journey, right? My awakening. And that was honestly in, in the CrossFit space. Um, so the University of Nevada, Reno was the first nonprofit CrossFit facility. Um, and I had a great mentor in there, a guy named Drew Canavero, became one of my good best friends, a really good friend of mine, and kind of guided me through the coaching process. And from there, I when I graduated undergrad in 2010, I actually 
took a full-time job coaching CrossFit. And then when I moved back to Las Vegas for physical therapy school, I coached through my entire time in PT school at CrossFit Max Effort down in Las oh, Vegas. Oh, nice. Yeah, I'm familiar with, uh, yeah. with their gym. Um, Zach Forrest, right? Yep. Was the owner of that? Yeah. Zach's the man. Yeah, still talk to him to this day, nice. Zach and Lindsay. And what yeah. were some of the big eye-opening mm. things that you saw with that type of setting, being on both sides of it? What were you noticing about the group class setting and then <clears throat> when you would see athletes one-on-one -on -one and what maybe some of the missing links there? Yeah. So the biggest thing I noticed was that a lot of the stuff that we were taught in PT school was actually kind of the opposite of what my ideal clients needed. You know, um, in physical therapy school, you're kind of learning about this population that isn't moving very much, that's very sedentary, um, that has a lot of comorbidities. And when you get into the fitness space, you know, the, the number one thing that I was actually consulting people on was like, your volume and recovery balance is absolutely out of whack. And that's the lowest hanging fruit that we need to start to attack. So what I found in my model is when I was treating for an hour, I felt like I was spinning my wheels. And that really helped me kind of mold what I wanted to do and say, you know what, like, my client might not even need to be in my facility, but they might need my expertise and they might need my guidance. So how can I manage them remotely in a process that is similar to what I'm going to do in person? And then in person, I'm only going to see people for 30 minutes and we're going to do hands-on work, go out in the gym, do whatever skill assessment we need to do or technique assessment. And then we're going to reinforce that throughout their week training and it was really more of this like guiding process than rehab process. So you've had a chance to do hands-on work with people. You've had a chance to do in-person. You've had a chance to do remote. And I think there's a lot of coaches that will probably get to the end of this podcast and be like, oh, that sounds great. But, you know, Ray's a doctor. Ray's had three years of physical therapy school. Ray has the ability to touch and maneuver people. And, you know, when he's hitting a stumbling block, he can just see them in person. What are your thoughts on mm -hmm. how, how powerful are coaches that haven't been to physical therapy school? What are they able to accomplish or what are they not able to accomplish as well on the flip side? I will just flat out say that there are probably coaches out there who are better quote unquote rehab practitioners. I know that they're not actually rehab practitioners than some clinicians. So discrediting the value that you can provide and the solutions that you can, that you can provide to your clients is really just you being in your own way and not confident enough in your offering and how you can help. And this was kind of something that you and I were talking about in the beginning, but the byproduct of physical therapy and good coaching can be the same. It just has to be the same for the ideal client. Where I do have an advantage as a physical therapist is I can access a client at a different phase of rehab, right? And you can look at rehab going on throughout any time post-injury. So where I can set myself apart is say, well, I'm going to work with this person acutely, post-operatively, where that would definitely be out of the, the scope of a coach. 
But if we're talking about somebody who has shoulder pain when they're in the gym and they're just kind of training and managing around it, if we're going to manage that person with a smart exercise program and with specific programming principles and dialing back their volume, couldn't a coach do that as well and just have the byproduct be no more shoulder pain, no more shoulder discomfort? So I think a lot of it is really just talking about the intent of what we're doing. The medical realm is going directly after the pain, for example, and the coaching realm is a byproduct of what can we manipulate so that the pain isn't really there. Anymore. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. We have, so we have a physical therapist that works out of our gym a, a few days a week and he works at Exos the rest of the week. And he's a member of our five and 6am classes. And we've had discussions with him and I want to ask you this same question, but we kind of came up with a formula of when someone's good to work with him versus when someone's good to work with us. And basically we, we kind of decided that when an injury is super acute, it just happened, there's an incident, there's a surgery, that they're a better fit for him. When it's also super chronic, it's been going on for many, many years, mm -hmm. You know, usually decade plus, they're also probably a good fit for seeing him. Also, when that pain scale is super high, it's seven plus out of 10, eight plus out of 10, probably a better fit for them. But if it's in that middle ground where it's not just acute, it hasn't been going on for years or decades, and the pain is, let's call it five, six or less, that's kind of our sweet spot as coaches to be able to use our tools to create some change. I, I love it. I think that there are a couple of things that you touched on in there that, that I want to expand on. The blend of this realm is in no way meant to create a turf war. The best thing that we can do for our clients is understand how we can help them and understanding how we can't help them. And if we keep that as our guiding principle, something that I've really been working on with one of my coaches is this process of commitment to the sales process, not the performance of the sales process. What I mean by that is if I'm committed to the sales process for this client, my goal isn't to sell them. It's to get them going in the right direction. Maybe that is with me, but maybe it's not. Versus if my focus is on performance, I look at, well, how do I close this thing out? And that often is what gets you in more trouble than, than worrying about your scope. It's, hey, something is going on and, and I think you need to see a good friend of mine who actually is in this facility. Let's send you over to him, see what he has to say, and then we can create a plan and I'll feel better about that. Yeah, your, your expertise can come in in the sales process. You don't have to wait to be able to showcase it. And oftentimes, not oftentimes, but sometimes that's gonna be pointing that person in a different direction. Absolutely, and, and I think it also just comes in comfort of knowing your boundaries and knowing your limits. Um, and I think you've done a good job of saying, here's some boundaries that, that we have as guidelines. I would go as far to say as if somebody does have a chronic issue for a long time, if there was a coach in your facility that was you know, comfortable working with that client, I'd be okay pushing that boundary a little bit. But that's gonna really depend on, you know, what problems am I comfortable solving? Nice. Um, 
So we've talked a little bit about the scope of, you know, a physical therapist or the scope of a doctor versus the coach. Um, where, where do you see as the missing potential for coaches right now? Where, where are they, can you shine a light on, Hey, you have this capacity that with a little bit of more education or maybe even no more education, you can help people do these things. What are those problems they could be solving or what are those things they could be helping people with? So I, I think it's partially in having a framework that you understand how to operate in and plug and play what clients need. So for example, every client's, what I call their client attribute profile is different. Everybody's capacity to stress and to load is different. And the more that we can start peeling back what's going on with that person, the better we can start to understand the picture and the environment and the context in which we're trying to get this person to their goals. So it's really less about understanding the scope and more about what's my framework for decision-making and how do I justify making a decision that essentially leads my client to water and convinces them to drink instead of forcing them to drink. That's, that's really a big one. We have to do more question asking and less uh, directing. How much, how much of injury and pain have you found to be fixed solely through correctives or manual therapy versus it's something outside of that, a lifestyle thing, a volume thing, a stress thing, you know, emotional blocks that are getting in there and how far can down that rabbit hole can coaches go? I think um, it brings me back to one more thing mm -hmm. to touch on from that last question is really understanding how to accumulate workload. So what I tend happens in what I tend find finds happening in that scenario is a client starts to feel better. Maybe their symptoms start to resolve. I personally don't, don't like using the term fix. I, I know that that kind of becomes the norm of what we're looking to do, but how do we resolve it and how do we manage it and how do we work with it and how do we understand it? And the big thing that tends to happen is people start to feel better. And as coaches or rehab professionals, we put too much on the emphasis of what they should do next on them. And we say things like, hey, when you go into the gym today, just like take this workout easy. Okay, well, what does easy mean? Is easy a 400 pound back squat for somebody who squats 600 pounds? Is it an empty barbell? The range of easy is way too variable for people. So if we're working with somebody one-on-one -on -one and we understand this unique context for them, we know kind of where the floor is. Your clients are going to be searching for the ceiling. We need to establish the floor and build towards the ceiling. That's why for me, it's, it's all about bridging that gap from rehab back to performance. It's gotta be gradual over time. It can't be this big spike. That's awesome. Um... I want to talk a little bit about how to transition group class clients to one-on-one -on -one training. And 
What are your thoughts on that? How do you spot it? Wherever you want to take that topic, and then I'll ask some follow up. Yeah, I, I, you know, something we were talking about in this beginning is like we need to understand the intent of each offering. We need to understand the problems that group class solves, for example. And we need to understand the constraints by which group class can solve other problems. So we need to have a system and process for saying, when I see something in group class that warrants escalation to further investigation, what does that engagement look like with the client? So oftentimes that can be a screening procedure or it might just even be asking the question like, hey, I saw you grabbing your shoulder during that workout, everything all right? Now we have an in. So it's understanding the intent of the offering. It's understanding what we're looking for as kind of these flags or indicators when somebody is seeking this escalation that maybe they don't know about yet. And then it's a process of engagement to understand if navigating that problem is important to them. Yeah, it's funny. So through working with you guys and the things that we had learned, we were we were having these conversations and we would jump, we were quick to jump to, Hey, let's get you scheduled for a movement assessment. Let's, let's see what's really mm -hmm. there. And then, you know, let's see if, um, we find anything and then we can try to help fix your issue. And one of the things that we switched about our process is we actually don't bring the movement assessment in or any kind of assessment in really until we've had the conversation with that person. Um, usually outside of the class. So usually it's like you said, the shoulder inquiry was a great way to lead into it. And then instead of trying to have a deep conversation there, it's like, Hey, do you have time later today? I'd love to get on the phone with you. Or we have time before class tomorrow. I'd love mm -hmm. to set aside 30 minutes where we can talk and setting that separate time where you can have the conversation to really figure out the level that this thing is bothering them and their motivation level to fix it. And then the assessment becomes part of the delivery process. And I share that with coaches because I've seen yes. a lot of what I saw in our staff is they were quick to close for the assessment. And what happened was, is the, the client thought they were getting a solution in the assessment instead of realizing that the assessment was just a way to understand if they could work together to actually get the solution, which would be working one-on-one -on -one together. Um, so that was just an interesting anecdote that I wanted to share. Do you have any thoughts on that or anything to add to that? Um, I think something that comes to mind is, you know, something that some clients that I mentor ask me is like, how do I convince somebody to work with me? And I'm sure that this kind of piggybacks off what were you just, you were just saying, um, you don't, right. If you have to convince them to work with you, the chances of them staying on probably aren't going to be great because the value of the problem that you're going to solve isn't high enough or the degree to which the problem is affecting the client isn't great enough yet. They, they need to have a greater effect on their life before they're going to seek change. So part of it is just saying, Hey, like, okay, if your shoulder's not a big deal right now, we can modify around it. Some of the things that might happen are X, Y, and Z. And when you're ready to make it a priority, I just want you to know that I can, I can help you. And that's kind of the process of spreading this message. Like, oh, I didn't even know you, you did that. You know, I thought I would just have to work around this. 
So it's understanding the problem that we solve and, and knowing how to navigate the conversation to make them make the decision. Yeah. Another thing that I've, I've witnessed is coaches who don't try to work with people one-on-one because -on -one they don't have a lot of confidence to deliver something that is different or more valuable than their group class. So can you speak to the value of having these assessments and what some of your favorite ways are to understand what's really happening and how, and how to give a more targeted approach once you get a client to agree they want more than just the group class? What if the difference in value was simply the specificity in which we understood the person? I think that's where we need to start. So too many people are getting stuck at the, how do I help? Instead of getting to the point where it's like, what's even going on? Like, how can I help? We're putting up this barrier of engagement before we even have a full picture of, of the information presented to us. And so the way that you can start to gain some confidence within this process is just by asking more questions. And I think we let people kind of get away with saying something and not probing further. Like, what do you mean by that? I, I need to know the context in whatever it is you're saying so that I can understand you at a deeper level. You know, what are, what are you protecting yourself from, from not going and working on your shoulder? Were you worried that the last person that you worked with didn't do a good job? So you're scared that's gonna happen again? Are you scared that you're gonna get bad news that you need shoulder surgery? And so you're avoiding that conversation? We need to be able to have those conversations and. And that's why, like, I just teach people, like, ask the question. Don't stop until you feel like, okay, I understand where this person is coming from. And, and I know that I can help them or I know that I need to, to send them to yeah. somebody else. Yeah, questions are so powerful. And I definitely think there's a, a natural aspect that needs to happen in a conversation. You don't want to be just formal rattling off the questions. But I do mm -hmm. find that certain questions can be uniquely powerful. So I'm wondering if you had any, I was gonna share a couple of my favorites. I, I find that asking someone how motivated they are to fix something and mm -hmm. giving it a zero to 10 rating is super powerful. Um, and then also what, what does success look like to them? And then oftentimes I'll phrase that as, let's say we do work together and let's say three months from now, we're doing great. Like we are accomplishing what you want to accomplish. What does that look like to you? What does that mean to you? Because for someone, they might like they might say, yeah, I'm a seven out of 10 pain wise. But honestly, if I could just get some progress, if I get that under two or three, that would be that would be amazing. And then others would be like, well, if it's not if it doesn't go away completely, then I won't feel like that's successful. And that that really sets your expectations as a coach is what you can deliver on. But what do you what are your favorite questions, if any, that pop into your head for getting deeper with someone? I like asking a really hard, blunt question. It's a question that opposes two things that are in conflict. So what's more important to you? Your shoulder feeling better or you coming in and performing high intensity exercise four days per week? Mm. If you answer 
me coming in, performing high-intensity exercise four times per week, I know, at least I know where your priorities lie. But if you say that it's getting your shoulder better, now we have an in to at least kind of cl uh, classify some levels of importance for you. That's, that's one of my favorite strategies. And I think it, it is one of them that you kind of need to practice a little bit at a lower level because it can come off as a little aggressive. And I don't like to use it unless I need to. But it's extremely powerful. That, I mean, the power of choice is amazing. Yeah, I love that. I think that's right. Just I say think it that's out awesome. Loud. And I, I think I talked about this in a recent episode with the PT Legends guys of how much of the sales process mm -hmm. actually sets the client up right from a mindset perspective to execute and see better results. And that that yeah. is something where four weeks into working with you, if that client is starting to hit a wall or plateau or not seeing progress, that question's stuck in their head. And they're like, oh wait, I'm coming five days a week. I'm coming four days a week. And Ray did, Ray did say that. And now they understand that that fork in the road is there. And maybe they didn't take it initially, even mm -hmm. though they agreed to it. But now that question is stuck in their head and they have a decision to make. And a good process to install there is kind of a mental check and balance. So when they're posed with a decision in the gym that you as a coach or rehab professional aren't there to navigate with them, they can kind of mentally check in and say, does this decision get me closer to or further away from my goal? And that really helps kind of steer you know, if there's a modification to be made, if there's a, a, a an intensity that we need to dial back. But this is really one of the reasons why I liked installing this hybrid process was because I could have some practices and procedures in, you know, the way that I wrote programming to say, what did you do yesterday? How did you respond? What's your readiness like today for training? then we can make a decision on what tomorrow looks like. And too many people I think are concerned with how does this change my in-person offering compared to my remote offering? The only difference is the, the time between feedback. In person, your feedback is immediate. So you're looking at, I need to coach somebody. I need to teach them a skill. I need to make sure they're doing something correctly versus with a remote process. It's they know how to do it. I'm comfortable with longer lag time between feedback, performance and feedback, for example. And when we start to just break down that barrier of like, what problem does each thing solve? It's more like, well, contextually, what does each thing provide? So you brought up the remote. So let's, let's talk about that a little bit. Um, if you're a coach and you have primarily group classes, you have some of these tools where you're able to do assessments and you're starting to build a book of business. Um, but you want to, maybe you feel a little limited by the facility you're in and you want to explore the, the remote route, or maybe that just feels better, feels more aligned with your style of working. Um, what are your thoughts on who should attack that? Can you do both? Should you choose between one or the other? What are your thoughts on that? 
Yeah. I, I think that there's a big misconception in what remote means. Remote simply means I'm not managing that client in person at that moment. It doesn't mean I create this arm of the business that is solely remote. So for example, when I was practicing clinically as a physical therapist, the perfect journey for a client of mine would be, we start off with an in-person assessment. We develop the skills and confidence necessary that where I feel like you don't need the immediate feedback, I transition my in-person client to a hybrid client where now instead of checking in weekly, we're checking in maybe every other week. But I'm also writing three days of programming for you. So I'm increase, increasing the touch points that we have week to week, which perceptually increases the value. It can also decrease the total cost to the client and it gets me time back, which then preps them for transitioning to fully remote while we recondition them to whatever it is they're looking to get. So instead of looking at it versus in-person and remote, Look at it as how does a remote process bolster and support my in-person offering, which allows me to solve more problems for more clients in less yeah. time. It's almost like what you're really weighing is the amount of touch points that a person needs in that part of their yeah. journey. Exactly. Exactly. It, it is literally plug and play. What's the problem my client has and which process best solves it? So right now I'm doing a course um, with a group of cash-based physical therapists. And some of the feedback that I'm getting is, well, my client wants in-person work. Great. You know exactly what they want and you offer that. So let's not force our clients into an offering that doesn't fit the type of service that they need. Let's make sure that we are able to account for the spectrum of how our clients are going to engage with us and really build that offering for them. It gives you so much flexibility up and down to, you know, keep an eye on things and keep track of things. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about where, where you like to learn and where you like to grow. Cause I've seen you evolve and grow over the years. So where did a lot of this knowledge come from for you outside of just the school and, and who are some of the mentors and, and people that you look up to, to continue your education? Yeah. I, I mean, a lot of it was learning what I didn't like. That's been a, that's always been a really valuable process for me of figuring out what I do like. So I learned a ton from my first job, obviously in the CrossFit space, I learned a ton about strength and conditioning. But in my first job, I learned a ton about customer service. You know, what does it mean to really bring rehab up to that next level for a client? So that's something that I talk about in the first week of my course offering is like the customer service aspect. Um, I also worked at Caesars Palace my freshman year summer. so. I do have a little hospitality background that bolsters that as well. Um, but then it's more gravitating towards doing, you know, like who's doing the thing that I want to do. 
Um, that was kind of how I initially got attracted to active life. They were doing a lot of the stuff that I wanted to do that shaped a lot of the things that I was doing that also allowed me to understand what I didn't want to do within those constraints anymore and evolve that process. And working in sports medicine, it's understanding what, what are the things that I need to take from this? So the big things for my clientele and my avatar was really tendon health and return to sport. So I dove into those things and I started applying them. And now the way that I coach people and the way that I learn is really understanding more of this process of how do I mentor the person better? How do I guide the person better? How do I understand the person better? How do I explain and communicate the value? Because honestly, tactically, I kind of feel like I have a good skill set there. I'm not worried about adding more tactics to my offering. I am worried about continuing to develop my interpersonal skills to bolster my communication around my offering. Yeah, I found that to be so, so valuable is you could have, I mean, we've known this on the group class side of things for years, which is you could have the perfect program. And if people aren't showing up, it doesn't matter. You know, that was always the argument, our mm -hmm. argument against, we're not going to program a, a 5k on a random Wednesday. Uh, because even though we might think it fits as the perfect balance to the rest of the programming, if not that many people show up, it really doesn't matter. And I think the same thing is true in the one-on-one -on -one side is that you might have the exact thing that person needs to resolve using your terminology here, resolve their issues. Um, but if they don't execute and they're just, maybe they execute and they're going through the motions or they drop off or they don't decrease their volumes because they don't, they're not fully committed to the process, or you don't have a way to get feedback mm -hmm. from them of like, what are the things that they like? And what are the things they don't like? Um, one of the things actually I want to ask you about is of the clients I do work with, if they have a background in sports, after I get a few weeks of correctives with them, I will ask them what they feel like is moving the needle. Because I feel like those types of athletes, yeah. if they have a background of paying attention to their body, you know, going through the ups and downs of a season and off season, they almost intuitively know what's working for them even before the issue is resolved. The, the big thing there is regardless if that's the thing, they believe mm. that's the thing. And the more belief you have in expectations, the better the outcome. So there was actually a, a, a rehab-based study done where the more invasive the procedure was, the perception of success was higher. And I, I can't, you know, rehab professionals out there probably going to blast me for citing this without knowing what it was. But essentially, they, they compared a sham procedure. Like, they literally poked holes, injected saline into the joint, and people felt better. Because their perception, their belief, was that something invasive happened and it was resolved. Your mind is an extremely powerful tool in this process. And that's why getting people to buy in isn't a sales process, it's an outcomes process. 
if you don't believe what we're going to do is going to work, it's probably not going to. So, and if you're making decisions that don't support the goal, we need to have a conversation that says, are you willing to sacrifice these things to get you the outcome that you're looking for? And if the answer is no, then we need to amicably part ways. Like there's nothing wrong with that. It's just a mutual understanding of the level of commitment needed for something to happen. That's great. Yeah, I didn't even really think about it from that placebo effect standpoint, but I've I've seen mm-hmm. some of those same studies that you're talking about, and I've seen it in many areas of my life, not just injury. So I, I feel like just from my own personal background, it, it resonates. It makes sense. Um I want to ask you a kind of a, a one-off question, which is, are you following the knees over toes guy? And are you familiar with his approach and what are your thoughts on it? I follow him. I am not fully vested in everything that he does. Um, the reason why his program has so much success is he understands the level of regression needed for some clients. And that can often be where we get stuck as coaches and rehab professionals is we simply haven't regressed people far enough because our expectation of what we think they should be able to do is higher. The reality is that the tissue may not be ready for that thing. So for example, you know, one of his big things is walking backwards. That's a really low level of regression for simply getting your knees acclimated to be over your toes. When we look at something more complicated like a pistol, we might think of that like, okay, well, maybe it's a counterbalance pistol where somebody's bolstering up their heels. Maybe it's a band-supported pistol. But we haven't really taken the pistol far enough back to understand that Maybe they just don't even have the tolerance to keep their knees over the toes. So his approach does an excellent job of understanding when to regress and how far back, assessing that tolerance profile, and then when to progress. But- what are your thoughts on working through pain? I know he's he, in the context of the regression, he's very big about never work through pain at all. If you feel any pain, let's regress it even more. Um, And Mm -hmm. my feeling of being in the industry and working with clients is that when you're doing stuff that looks more like correctives and is very controlled, that it's okay to work through a one or two out of 10 pain scale in those settings. But whenever there's speed, whenever there's intensity, whenever there's a heavy load, we, we want to be complete zero out of 10. We want to have nothing. Um, I can't speak for what he actually believes in that process. My interpretation of that is it may be a risk mitigation strategy for the way that their program is deployed. When you're deploying something to the masses, you really need to understand kind of that lowest common denominator that we're looking to remove a variable from. If their boundary is you shouldn't move without pain and it simply takes longer to progress, 
That's a sacrifice that they're willing to make. This is a big difference between somebody who's following a template and somebody who's working with a coach or rehab professional. We're removing all the context of what that pain means in your uh, mm -hmm. former example. In the latter, we're processing and digesting when we're working one-on-one, -on -one, what does that performance mean? Or what does that pain mean? Was it just kind of an alarm? Was it kind of a one-time fluke? Does it tell us that, okay, maybe we are actually loading appropriately? So the context definitely matters. And when you're deploying something to the masses, you know, even if it's beneficial, you do lose some of that context. Yeah, my, um, I love how important the context is because I agree there's certain times where you're like, oh, that fell off. And then you do another rep of something and it feels fine. Or the opposite, you feel like, oh, wow, mm -hmm. that, that tweaked something and I can't, I shouldn't go forward with that. Um, if you're working one-on-one -on -one with someone or remotely and it's an exercise where you're okay, okay with a little bit of pain there. Um, do you actually mm -hmm. see that as a sign that you're probably doing the right thing in, in many cases? I think it really depends on what's the issue, right? If, if I'm working with somebody who has a tendon health issue, I kind of expect there to be a little pain. If I'm working with somebody who has an instability issue, and they don't really have pain, they have this sensation and pain pops up, I might pull back a little bit and just say, try that, try that one more time. Did it, did it give you the same thing? So now I'm assessing the tolerance and I'm assessing what's going on in that moment to understand if we need to regress the movement, if we need to change the pattern, or if we need to like deload the problem, right? If somebody is coming into me for an irritation issue and as we're moving, it's getting a little bit more painful. Well, in that situation, I'm probably poking the bear a little bit and aggravating the tissues. So that's really where that context around what does pain mean depends on what we're dealing with and how that person interprets the pain experience. Yeah. It kind of all circles back to that placebo effect of there's that mental side to it as well. Yeah, I, I've got people all the time that say, hey, my, my knee bugged me when I squatted this week. Does it normally bug you? No. Okay. Let's squat this week and see what happens. Like we don't need to just, we don't need to send all the fire alarms off and, and you know, rush to figure out why somebody's knee hurt that one time when they squatted. We just need to keep an eye on it and kind of see what happens the next time they train. Um, if it bugs them again, okay, maybe we discuss a modification and, you know, one of the narratives out there is like that there's, there's nothing wrong with modifying. We just have to understand the problem that modification solves. Modification is a beautiful tool to keep somebody moving to continuously solve a fitness problem, a training problem. Is modifying going to solve their knee hurting when they squat below depth? Probably not, but it may be part of the strategy to keep them training while we figure out and solve the problem while their knee hurts when they squat below parallel. 
So again, I think some of these blanket terms and blanket statements can, can really be detrimental to what the person is experiencing and, and how they're experiencing it in the gym. And the last thing we want to do is unmotivate people to continue training. Yeah, that's great. Well, let's wrap up on that, Ray. Um, I want to talk a little bit about what you're doing now. So do you work more in the clinical setting or do you work with athletes or are you working more with the coaches side of things now? Yeah, so I, I don't practice clinically anymore. Um, I do a little bit of remote programming and coaching. I keep a roster of about five to seven clients that kind of keeps my brain stimulated and active within the process. Um, and most of my time is spent educating coaches and rehab professionals on constructing their offerings, figuring out a sales process and method that feels good for them, figuring out assessment tools that they actually feel good using and understand why they're using them and then helping them bridge the gap between rehab back to performance. And I do that in a, a group class called Retain. And then I also work with clients, both coaches, I'm sorry, coaches and rehab professionals, one-on-one uh, -on -one in a mentorship capacity to make sure that they're implementing the things that they need to implement. And that's kind of a we do a needs assessment of what they need for their, their business or for their process, similar to like we would do for a client in the gym. And we start working and attacking on, on those things, um, really making that process feel like their own. That's awesome. Well, I'm excited for you and, and uh, what you're doing for coaches. And you've given us a lot of value and really helped us to uh, create this amazing part of our business that is helping out a lot of people. So want to thank you for that. And, and thanks for taking the time today. Where could people find more about you and, and these different uh, offerings, the retain and the one-on-one? -on -one? Yes. So best place to connect with me is on Instagram at Ray Gorman DPT. And then if you want more info on my course offerings, you can go to engagemovement.com. Awesome. Thank you so much, Ray.